0: Today, I'm speaking with Anders Aslund, and it's something of a milestone for the channel. I've interviewed Anders over seven months ago, and he was the first guest on the podcast. Having now done more than 60 interviews with Western, Ukrainian, and Russian experts, I'm delighted to welcome him back to the channel to explore what has happened since then and what Putin's endgame might be. Anders Aslund, has had a long and varied career as academic, diplomat and author. Dr Asland has advised the Russian and Ukrainian governments and is the author of 15 books, most notably Russia's Crony Capitalism, a scathing analysis of the economic system that has taken hold in Russia. He is a senior fellow at the Stockholm World Forum and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He's worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow, Poland, Geneva, and Kuwait, and is fluent in six languages. Anders, welcome back to the channel. Thank you. My pleasure, Jonathan. So it's quite a momentous week in the US. I know you're based uh, in Washington. There are elections happening. Um, Focusing on Ukraine, will the outcome of the election change or slow down the rate of support for Ukraine, do you think?
1: It's quite uh, likely that it slows down uh, <clears throat> and uh, slightly lowers uh, the U.S uh, support for Ukraine. And there are essentially two factors. One is uh, former president uh, Donald Trump who's dead against the uh, Ukraine and democracy and all in favor of uh, Putin and kleptocracy. Uh, and the other factor is that the U.S think that uh, the European Union should do much more than it does now.
0: And we saw the weaponization of COVID, we see the weaponization of many issues that should be bipartisan. Do you think the MAGA GOP under Trump will also seek to weaponize the issue of support for Ukraine?
1: Well, we have seen that. To begin with, there was almost a a complete unanimity for support for Ukraine. And in the last... uh, a vote in the congress it was uh, one quarter of the republicans both in the senate and in the house of representatives who voted against That's it, the three quarters who voted in favor and all the democrats without exception voted in favor of support for ukraine
0: and do you think uh, president biden has built that understanding in do you think he's been able to accelerate the supply of weapons and the unlocking of aid packages um before this vote uh or 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 perhaps it's not quite so well considered i think that he has been uh, very good
1: in this regard if you take the total package that uh, the u.s congress has uh, decided this year it's 66 billion dollars which happens to be exactly as much as the annual uh, official budget of the 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 russian defense so this is a very substantial amount of um, resources that the U.S. uh, has uh, dedicated to Ukraine, and rightly so, because this is not uh, only defense of Ukraine, it's defense of the the West, it's defense of uh, NATO, because Russia doesn't say that it's pursuing a war against Ukraine. It says that it pursues a war uh, uh, against the collective West, as the current uh, standard term means. They've stopped saying uh, NATO and instead say, the collective West.
0: And of course, the Russian propagandists have picked up on that, haven't they? And that's one of the excuses they're giving about their failures in the war, that they're not just fighting Ukraine, but they're fighting the entire collective West.
1: Indeed, that's something i are trying to explain uh, that, that they are doing so poorly, but, uh, uh, it's coming out ever more how badly the, the Russians are really doing. Even if they have not to publicise that they have lost uh, seventy-five thousand killed soldiers, if we are to believe the Ukrainian numbers, which I think are pretty accurate.
0: Now, I recently spoke to uh, an expert on the strategy and history of warfare, and he suggested that you know, an age-old strategy in warfare is attrition, uh, and that is wearing your enemy out. Um, Is there any truth that uh, supplies of weapons, even though they're approved under Nendlis and so on, uh, that the actual supply of them is being drawn out, rationed as it were, in order to wear out and destroy Russia?
1: Well, uh, I would say that uh, the U.S. uh, supplies have increased uh, sharply. So in the summer, uh, what the Ukrainians reported was that uh, the Russians had 10 times as much uh, artillery as they had. Now, recently, in the last month, the Ukrainians uh, in the south, have reported that uh, they have as much artillery as uh, the russians have and uh, since they have modern western weapons uh, their precision is far greater than those of of the russians so uh, it has been a mistake uh, on the western side that uh, they uh, did not deliver enough early on and only gradually realized that they had to give much more And the mistakes there have been based on arguments, uh, we must not provoke Putin, which is an absurd argument given that Putin has started the war, and we must not push Putin into the corner. Well, if you want to defeat somebody, you had better push him into uh, the corner. And we see all the time that um, Putin does retreat uh, when he's uh, given new uh, of a uh, choice, uh, and another argument that uh, we must offer Putin a, an off ramp. Why uh, he is not offering anybody an off ramp, and he is uh, not asking for a, any off ramp, or that Putin must not lose face. Well, uh, face is what he exactly uh, should lose, and. Uh, It's primarily the Germans and the French, but also some people here in Washington who have pushed these arguments. And unfortunately, they still exist. And of course, the Ukrainians must negotiate. Well, why should they negotiate when the Russians are pursuing a war of aggression against them? The problem of 2014 was that Russia had got a strong foothold in Ukraine. So uh, uh, a massive uh, majority of the Ukrainians now understand that we must uh, kick out uh, the Russians out of the whole country, otherwise we can't get any secure peace.
0: I've been told in one of the interviews I did by uh, by a soldier that, that it's bad form to question the motives of allies, uh, and that provides a sort of opportunity for Russian propaganda, but... Some of the actions it seems of France and to a greater extent, perhaps Germany um, do give cause for worry, don't they? And the, the the recent example of the inability of Germany to supply ammunition for the Gepard system because of uh, Swiss export blocks. I mean, that raises real questions, doesn't it? About the willingness and even capability of Europe to defend itself um, and if, american sort of support and largesse was to be uh reduced or removed from europe uh, it does raise fears about europe's capability of defending itself
1: oh de- de- definitely but we have known this for a very long time that, uh, that europe has uh, been pretty unable uh, to defend itself and uh, it has been enough to uh, do any count of uh, the numbers how many tanks how many the soldiers uh, so Uh, Recently, uh, France and uh, Britain have had just about 100,000 men of actual uh, soldiers, which is nothing, when Russia uh, claimed to have slightly more than one million. Ukraine today has 750,000 soldiers. So Ukraine has today uh, the biggest, the best trained, and the best equipped um, army in Europe. And if you think of it, uh, uh, when you see Ukrainian soldiers... As you see so often in videos and photos, they are almost always perfectly correctly dressed with all equipment on, which is what should be be the, uh, the case. And it was General Ben Hodges who pointed that out that it's rare that you see soldiers that are as disciplined and uh, orderly as the Ukrainian soldiers. This is a real professionalism. Uh, you would not see that among. Western uh, soldiers. Admittedly, the the British and the French, they hold up in this regard, but certainly not with the Germans. The German uh, military forces have, for uh, quite understandable reasons, been a a big mess for a long time.
0: And at the end of the Cold War, it's my understanding that the German army was in a much better state, both in terms of equipment, readiness and training capability. And that's been significantly eroded, really, over the last 20 to 30 years.
1: Yes, of course, uh, what uh, uh, the West in general and the, uh, uh, Europe in, in particular has benefited from is uh, is uh, a huge uh, peace dividend. Uh, uh, the United States in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan spent 6% of GDP on uh, defense, recently has been about uh, 3.5%, and this was very much... Uh, what drove the U.S. economy in the 1990s? Uh, Clinton cut it from 6 to 3% of uh, GDP, the military expenditures. And uh, Europe in recent years has had uh, just over 1.5% of uh, GDP in uh, defense expenditures. Now it's swiftly rising to 2% of GDP. And when people discuss, uh, can Europe uh, really afford this, of course? This is uh, a miscalculation money in the pension system that we are discussing, the total amount that needs to be be increased. So now we're seeing that Germany is jumping from one and a half to uh, 2% of uh, GDP. Obviously, when you do it so fast, you don't have uh, all the capabilities to uh, increase so fast, and they haven't thought uh, through uh, if they have uh, the relevant uh, licenses or not. As we saw, with. of uh, the Swiss licenses. All this has to be thought through.
0: And of course, it's not just equipment. I mean, German army could be much better equipped, but actually it's the experience uh, and technique which is important. And I think something you mentioned earlier about the videos of Ukrainian troops being orderly and with uh, often very sort of you know neat uniforms uh, properly presented. I saw another video yesterday where you had a armored column of uh, Ukrainian uh, tanks, and light tanks and, and heavy armor, and there was a gap in between them. So there was a sort of, you know, 30 second gap or so in between each vehicle passing, uh, which, of course, is a discipline that stops the entire column being taken out by artillery. You don't see that same tactical uh, discipline uh, in the Russian troops, do you? Uh, or... or any kind of observance often of any kind of strategic logic to how they're maneuvering or retreating or attacking
1: no that's uh, very correct and uh, what uh, the ukrainian troops have done is that they have got proper western training by british uh, american and canadian uh, officers and therefore they have learned uh, for example insurgent uh, tactics how do you uh, fight if you are Uh, fewer uh, men and uh, how do you uh, uh, protect yourself you can also say that uh, the ukrainians are fighting like the israelis or as the finnish uh, soldiers did during the uh, 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 winter war 1939-40 they uh, uh, know that they are fewer they keep distance from one another they uh, go up uh, close and they shoot uh, to kill not uh, just uh, to, to make uh, noise because they can't afford uh, uh, to miss. And also, that uh, Ukraine as a democracy has predominantly volunteer soldiers. Uh, and that means, on the one hand, that the soldiers are older and therefore calmer. Uh, on the other hand, it <clears throat> Uh, means uh, uh, that, that they maintain uh, m- more uh, uh, discipline and uh, uh, think more. So uh, it is uh, a great situation. And of course, uh, it also means that the Ukrainian officers are very careful so that they don't waste the lives of their uh, soldiers, which the Russians uh, do enormously. You might have noticed recently that almost 1,000 Russian soldiers die every day after the mobilisation. So the mobilised soldiers are being pushed to the front after two, three weeks after they've been mobilised, virtually without training, with uh, little or no equipment, and then they're uh, shot and killed instantly. I was going to pick up
0: on that uh, later, but it's probably a good point to address that now. It's not just a sort of logistical difference, is it? There's a, an actual qualitative difference, a cultural difference in the value that is placed on lives on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, with the Ukrainians behaving really like um, free peoples, uh, like a democratic uh, Western attitude to the sanctity of life. Um, whereas on the Russian side, there is a, an absolute callousness an indifference and incompetence. When it comes to uh, protecting lives
1: yeah what ukrainians uh, say in various means that is that uh, uh, slaves cannot uh, defeat uh, free men and uh, you can also see that the ukrainians have 15 percent women among their uh, soldiers and this uh, is what the israelis have experienced that you get better troops when you have more women Uh, involved in in the uh, troops, something that uh, women perhaps do not necessarily uh, think of, but very important is this decentralization among the Ukrainian troops, that uh, the ordinary soldiers are allowed to shoot when they think that they should shoot, which the Russian soldiers are not entitled to. They have to uh, receive a strict order, now you shoot. And then, of course, uh, uh, you get uh, much worse uh, results if you're so steered uh, from above. And also the Russians don't have non-commissioned officers, something that the American military always uh, points out, while the Ukrainians who have been trained in a Western way have non-commissioned officers. And uh, the the whole uh, command structure in Ukraine is uh, much more agile. Uh, Russia has lost at least a dozen generals killed, and they have uh, sacked at least nine senior generals. So it seems to be a complete chaos in the higher uh, demand. And they don't use that many generals. And they have lost lots of colonels and uh, lieutenant colonels because uh, the Ukrainians have uh, intentionally uh, killed off uh, uh, the command of the Russian troops, and the Russians don't have many more. So now they have uh, uh, lots of untrained soldiers. Nobody who can train them. They don't have any kind of equipment, not uh, even the uniforms for these uh, soldiers. In some cases, we have seen that um, rifles from before World War One have uh, been um, issued uh, to, to the Russian uh, soldiers. So they are under-equipped, un- under-nourished, and uh, generally furious, as we see in many videos.
0: It has terrible echoes uh, of the First World War, doesn't it? Uh, with uh, people having to share boots and equipment and waiting for somebody else to die before they get their uh, equipment. It's It's got the horrific echo of history about it.
1: Indeed, indeed. And of course, uh, the war from 2014 to 2022 in uh, Donbas. That was uh, trench warfare where the Russian and the Ukrainian soldiers were lying uh, 100 to 150 meters away from each other. The Ukrainians learned how to operate that. The Russians did not.
0: Now, talking about sort of Russian uh, equipment and tactics, this war has really destroyed perceptions of the Russian military prowess, hasn't it? But not only that, there must be some concerns amongst Russia's partners like India who have purchased vast amounts of Russian military equipment. It hasn't really been shown to be that effective or the kind of quality that I think many analysts believed it had at the start of the war.
1: Indeed. I think that this is a, a big thing. So if we look upon the mistakes uh, that Russia has made, uh, the first mistake is that Putin seems to have been all commanding the troops, uh, the generals, directly without interference of the uh, general staff. And then when he doesn't like the generals, then he has sacked one after, after the other. So it has been an excessive uh, Uh, centralization of uh, command and and power. And the other is that uh, the the Russian military industrial complex has been utterly uh, corrupt from the top down. And we can see uh, Sergei Chemezov, the head of uh, the biggest military industrial company, Rostec, with at least 700 companies within it. What is his merit? He served together with Putin as a KGB officer in Dresden in the 1980s and therefore he's given all this. What is the most remarkable for? Well, he's one of the owners of a major super yacht, showing that he is utterly corrupt and therefore we see that everything is being stolen. It was reported about uh, the the fourth tank army that uh, 90% of uh, the tanks uh, in in storage had uh, lost uh, their electronics because somebody had stolen it. We learned that uh, the soldiers are not uh, being given food because uh, food supplies are being monopolized by Putin's so-called cook, uh, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin who's also organizing mercenary uh, uh, troops. So he's taking the money for himself. It was reported that some of the food that actually was uh, provided was from 2016. So it's uh, cheaper to uh, give old uh, food. And uh, to begin with, the soldiers only got food for three days. Uh, And uh, therefore they had to uh, loot in order to, uh, uh, to survive. And somebody, sold cheap Chinese tires to the the military trucks, which broke immediately when they were out on somewhat difficult roads. And the soldiers themselves considered that it was a human right to get uh, to steal half of the, the diesel, so therefore nothing has been working because they have stolen so much, and of course it also reflects on the quality of the weapons. If uh, the military industry has one major objective to steal in order to enrich themselves, you would not expect that the quality will be uh, be good. So I think that both India and China have good reason to rethink uh, what kind of uh, uh, military equipment they actually have.
0: And since we last spoke, there have been many extraordinary things that have happened. Uh, probably the least extraordinary is the NATO expansion, which I think we talked about last time, and that was on the cards with Sweden and uh, Finland joining. That, of course, has doubled the, um, in terms of, of kilometers the amount of border that Russia has with NATO, which is a bit of an own goal. And, and this is this is going to be a very easy question, I think. How do you explain the, what seems to me, the much better readiness of the Finns and the Swedes and much better readiness to potentially counter, um, you know, Russian aggression, both militarily, but also psychologically, they seem to be far better geared up uh, to tackle an enemy like Russia and far less, um, I would say, uh, open to Russian propaganda narratives?
1: Well, uh, Finland, of course, has uh, fought uh, three wars with Russia in uh, the last uh, century. So the the Finns uh, uh, know who the enemy is. They don't talk loudly about it, but they know. And they are prepared to fight because they have uh, done so very successfully. So uh, no country in Europe is tougher than it comes to military matters uh, than than the uh, the Finns. Uh, the uh, the Soviet army uh, had enormous losses uh, uh, during world uh, the winter War and World War II in um, in Finland and that was all run by Marshal Mannerheim, who's the great national hero uh, in Finland and rightly so. Without Mannerheim, there wouldn't be any Finland uh, today. So Finland has all the time had military service, which is quite uh, serious. And they have all the time had 2% of GDP in military expenditure. Sweden is different. In Sweden, the Russians are actually known as the hereditary uh, enemy. (laughs) The last uh, time uh, Sweden had uh, foreign troops uh, on its land, it was in 1713 and 1714, when Russian uh, troops uh, burnt the islands around uh, uh, Stockholm. And the uh, Swedes, as a peaceful uh, can, uh, nation, do not forget such things uh, very easily, given that uh, Sweden has been in the peace since 1815, uh, uh, f- all the- all together. Sweden and Russia have had more than uh, 20 peace treaties uh, in the course of uh, 500 years. So uh, the Swedes, uh, without making much noise about it, knows where they uh, stand. And when uh, uh, Russia attacked uh, Ukraine in 2014, uh, it was a Finnish journalist who said that the Swedes got angry and the Finns got anxious. So at that time, uh, half the uh, Swedish population wanted to join NATO, but not the ruling Social Democratic uh, Party. In Finland, it was uh, only about 20% that wanted to join NATO. They still hoped that they could uh, get away uh, uh, with their old neutrality. But uh, from February 2022, The Swedish numbers for NATO increased from almost 50% to uh, two-thirds. And then there was a majority in the Social Democratic Party, and the Social Democrats um, uh, joined the voters rather than the other way around. And in uh, Finland, it was very different. It was uh, the President uh, Sauli Minister who raised the issue uh, in his New Year's speech and said that Finland and Sweden uh, have the right to join NATO if they so desire. He did not say that he wanted them to to join, but he raised the issue. And uh, the uh, Social Democratic uh, Prime Minister Sanna Marin in Finland came out immediately and said no. So then the president sat down and talked to her, and both came out and spoke in favor of NATO membership, and Finland took the lead, and Sweden uh, followed on the tails of uh, Finland. In Finland, it was uh, all the big parties uh, uh, sat down uh, and agreed that they should join uh, NATO. They had the party congresses in good order, but the Finnish process was top-down, while the Swedish process was uh, Uh, bottom up within the Social Democratic Party and the four non-socialist parties were already in favor of the NATO. So then it was uh, a quick deal when the Social Democrats uh, uh, turned around.
0: And it's not just uh, Finland that's getting anxious, is it? Um, All these states that were within the uh, USSR or within the Russian sphere of influence. I mean, there is there is anxiety in Georgia um central asia azerbaijan even moldova and places i mean there's a there's a high degree of concern about russia's revanchism and its ambition to rebuild essentially its imperial territories
1: yeah i think that uh, moldova is uh, the country that is most exposed uh, uh, it's the it's small it's weak and it's quite uh, divided and it has this uh, large uh, area, Transnistria, with about 300,000 people, which is uh, really a, a Russian exclave, even if it's not f- formally uh, so. And all the three Baltic countries, while well, they're in a very good order and uh, well-run, they are small and uh, vulnerable, and they are uh, uh, very much uh, in favor of defending themselves against um, Russia. And they all know that uh, they are too small uh, so that they can be overrun by the Russian soldiers. Therefore, they have uh, developed uh, insurgent uh, defense, uh, as has Finland. So they are quite prepared to it. And uh, uh, Latvia and Estonia have actually spent 1% of GDP this year on defense of uh, Ukraine. So p- proportionately, these two countries uh, have done most, and they are followed by Lithuania and, uh, and Poland. Well, if you take the UK and the US, it's um, uh, slightly less than a quarter of uh, the GDP that has been devoted to uh, uh, u- Ukrainian support, which is, of course, a lot and much bigger real numbers. But uh, if you th- look up on the commitment of the nations, you see where the commitment is the greatest.
0: And it's a relatively small price to pay for essentially what Ukrainians are doing, and that is providing a, a kind of great wall between, um, let's say, Eastern despotic imperialism and, and uh, Western values. I mean, they are literally uh, being sacrificed uh, to protect Western democracy.
1: Indeed. The Poles and the Bolts, uh, they all understand that if, uh, <clears throat> if uh, Russia wins in Ukraine, it will continue further to, to the West, uh, not knowing exactly which country will, that will come first. So therefore, uh, they are uh, prepared to do a lot. And of course, there are also thousands of Western volunteers in, uh, in Ukraine who are really fighting.
0: Now, you've obviously observed uh russia for many decades um you've been very close uh, at times to understanding you know the governance of russia and how uh you know how the elite thinks over the last couple of months what do you think is the most significant uh events that have happened we've had mobilization we've had the max exodus of middle-class russians we've had quite significant levels of internal sabotage within Russia, um, You know, not just the Vankomas, but also sabotage of um, military-industrial complex. We've had assassinations within the energy sector and have hints at power struggles between the army, the political elite, and the FSB. Out of all these extraordinary events, which do you think is the most important, and how is this all going to play out?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the first is, of course, the start of uh, the war, which uh, and the, the failure of the, the, the war. The second is the increased repression inside the country, which has been quite extraordinary that uh, Putin has now gone back to a Stalinist uh, repression. This is no longer Brezhnev repression, but the Stalinist uh, the repression. And the third is, uh, well, perhaps the uh, had the biggest impact in russia the mobilization and then the mass flight to, uh, to to the uh, to, to all kinds of countries where where it was open so th- this will be a big blow to the uh, to the russian economy because these are well-educated young men who are le- leaving the, the country and they are not uh, likely to come back because then they can be be called uh, up uh, so the mobilization was uh, probably the biggest blow that uh, putin uh, delivered uh, to his own regime and then of course we should also say that, that the western uh, sanctions have been a, a big blow so russia has now become pretty much uh, as isolated as north korea and uh, iran and uh, syria which are clearly the countries that uh, russia now feels uh, uh, most at, at home will and uh, the people that i uh, socialize with in russia they have by and large left the country a couple are in a uh, prison uh, and uh, uh, people who stay they have uh, become uh, completely apolitical because uh, it's dangerous to do anything uh, politically any longer.
0: And do you think, is that repression likely to increase further as the economic situation becomes ever more fragile? My
1: basic view is that uh, Putin uh, has started a policy that is not sustainable. He's not uh, delivering anything uh, to his people. Uh, GDP has stagnated since uh, 2014, and now it's falling pretty uh, uh, fast. Uh, uh, He can uh, uh, not pursue any modernization. All the modern people are leaving. Uh, The population will decline since people are uh, running away and he's uh, creating uh, ethnic tensions by uh, exploiting ethnic uh, minorities uh, f- for his warfare in uh, uh, Ukraine. He has isolated the country completely, and he has forced uh, the West to impose uh, serious uh, uh, sanctions against Russia, and he can't uh, win in the war, and he has effectively destroyed uh, the, the Russian military uh, resources. So this is really an extraordinary failure. And what uh, has it delivered? Extreme uh, repression and also uh, massive kleptocracy. All the, the Putin people have become billionaires. The wealth in these circles is quite extraordinary, as you can see from all the super yachts and the palaces. Just think of it, but the US has now sanctioned five super yachts that, uh, are associated with Putin. They cannot say belong to Putin because often they are some kind of uh, companies uh, that uh, own them, but they are really Putin's uh, yachts. So uh, the picture that is missing is Putin as an extreme hedonist with 25 palaces, uh, with lots of uh, uh, jets, with lots of expensive uh, uh, watches, and um, than these uh, five uh, super yachts, uh, so put in the head on this, to behave like uh, uh, Arab uh, Emir that has not come
0: through. I mean, far from being a master strategist, hasn't the last eight months really shown that he is much more of a, an aggressive opportunist? And does he even have any aims now? Are there any clearly defined objectives to this senseless war? Uh, No, I think that what
1: Putin is interested in is one thing, victory. Uh, People think that it is he wants to restore the former Soviet Union. Uh, To some extent, that's correct, because uh, that is uh, the the hard nationalist in Russia uh, who desire that, and he uh, uh, appeals uh, uh, to them. But I don't think that matters to Putin personally. He wants uh, war because that allows him to uh, increase repression and it increases his, his um, popularity so that he doesn't need to do anything for the population. And given that he fails in everything, I think that he will um, decline. And as you said, Putin is no strategist at all. He has not shown any uh, strategy. He doesn't want to have any modernization of economy or um, even economic growth for the next uh, uh, decade. He just wants to to stay in power and in uh, indulge in all his uh, uh, luxury. But that's all this man is about. So it's a sort of a standard uh, uh, third world uh, dictator.
0: And I think one of the interesting aspects of the last couple of weeks is that until now Putin has not mm-hmm. let anybody overshadow him, or or even rise to the top. Prigozhin, however. Unusually for the, for the elite, seems to be making quite a few of the headlines. Do you think there's some kind of succession process going on? And Prigozhin, I'm sure we have the same view of him. I mean, he's he's hardly a Khrushchev figure. Um, he's more like Beria, if we're looking at the succession process. He's a he's a really toxic individual. I I don't know what your sense is of of the uh, you know the transition of power that might be going on.
1: I think that Putin is against any kind of <clears throat> succession. And uh, I think that he uses these uh, extremists uh, to show I'm not the worst. There are people who are even worse than me. And therefore, he allows them to uh, to make noises. And if he wanted to uh, do these things in any way, uh, the case himself, then he uh, came blame blamed them. You always had these people. It was the same under uh, Stalin, that said, oh, 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 we must not allow Beria to come to, uh, to power. And um, under Brezhnev, Uh, They said, oh, the the people in the wings are much worse. And then uh, out came Gorbachev. It uh, took some time in each case before Khrushchev came after Stalin and Gorbachev after Brezhnev. But... uh, Uh, we should not uh, believe that there are worse people in the wings because this is a personal authoritarian system today in uh, Russia. It's not based on family. It's not based on party. It's not based on constitution. It's only one uh, person. And therefore, it's very weak. When uh, Putin disappears in one way or the other, uh, the the regime will collapse as it did in August uh, '91. so that's what I'm looking forward to, but I don't know when.
0: And, you know, obviously that, that that transition process is going to be extremely unstable because of the lack of a clear process, because of the lack of institutions. But perhaps at a deeper level, how can Russia be cured of its imperial ambitions that lust for territorial expansion, which unfortunately many, many Russians seem to respond positively to?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, uh, Russia needs really to be uh, cleansed from its imperial past, and this imperial past has been uh, several uh, layers. One is to take down all the Lenin statutes and all other uh, communist uh, terrorists. Uh, They should not be honoured with uh, the names of anything any longer, Uh, Ukraine and other uh, western uh, former soviet republics have done that uh, they claim cleansing it remains to be done in uh, in russia uh, transform Kremlin into a museum. If you have these enormous halls, as in the Kremlin, you get a dictatorship. It's very quiet inside the, the Kremlin. I've been there quite uh, quite a few times, and you feel very comfortable, regardless of what the situation is in the the in the streets. Uh, even the offices for uh, advisors uh, are just uh, enormous. Uh, uh, so build the normal uh, offices spare time for example in Berlin when you you get the, the, the democracy functioning and transform Kremlin into a, <clears throat> a museum and uh, Barry Lenin and uh, uh, make sure that the um, Lenin mausoleum is no longer there all these things need to be done the history needs to be properly studied and what particular Alexander Jacob and uh, Uh, memorial did in the late uh, uh, 1980s and in the 1990s, that was to bring out the truth about the Stalinist repression and now of course about the uh, Putin repression as well. I lived in Moscow 84 to 87, and I th- uh, thought that it was extraordinary in 87, that people could take all, all of this uh, terrible history, and that they really wanted uh, to dig into it, because it was really awful. And uh, so they did not want to dig uh, more into it, but it needs to come out uh, uh, fully. Russia must uh, finish uh, its history, and of course uh, do away with uh, all this uh, imperial uh, History, and you can see in uh, France and uh, Britain and uh, the other strong empires, it was not easy. In uh, uh, empires like uh, Poland and Sweden that were very weak, it was much uh, much easier to get rid of it. Not to mention uh, Denmark. So uh, you can get rid of an uh, empire, but you have to to work on it um, seriously, and. Um, uh, something that is likely to happen before that is what uh, 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 former uh, Prime Minister Yegor Gaidar wrote about the collapse of an empire. He published a book in 2006 and he uh, suggested that if Russia would turn uh, towards imperialism again, which he expected Putin to do. While he didn't point out Putin by name, then he thought that uh, the Russian Federation would break apart. One would expect uh, a number of uh, republics, at least on the edges, particularly in uh, northern Caucasus, uh, uh, to depart from from Russia. So uh, this is likely to be a messy uh, process. But on the other hand, it will be good for Russia, and it will be good for uh, the outside world because that will be the end of the uh, uh, russian soviet uh, putin imperialism
0: and I'm, it's a really interesting question isn't it because the western media and to an extent i think some politicians will fixate on the idea that a change at the top is going to um fundamentally change this pattern of behavior but actually in all the interviews i've done and everything I've looked at from some sort of Russian um, literature. I mean, it, it, what we've got here is a massive uh, administrative system, uh, a power vertical that's really been in place since I think the 1870s and a substantial police state that kind of dates from, from a similar period. And if you're going to have substantial change in culture, you, you can't just, you know, uh, decapitate the elite you have to completely dismantle that entire uh, imperial administration and the hierarchy um, that that uh, that that leads us in mean, every generation to these kind of disasters that we're seeing at the moment
1: yeah and in particular you need to prohibit uh, the kgb and uh, dissolve it uh, all, altogether the baltic states did so and we see this is the basis of their very good uh, d- democracy Uh, And and now, in Russia, the old KGB, now the FSB, has essentially come back and taken over all all the power. And uh, uh, that is the most important institution in Russia. It has to be thoroughly abolished. Uh, But when you do that, you probably get uh, violence, because these people are used uh, to make money on uh, violence. And this is not an easy process.
0: Now, my last question isn't uh, about Ukraine or, or Russia. Um, I'm going to turn to the US very quickly, because obviously it's a momentous week with the midterms. And I hear a lot of uh, sort of you know liberal commentators and political analysis, anal- analysts worrying really about the slide to oligarchy and potentially autocracy under the sort of MAGA extremism. Um, What's your view of the risks to democracy in the U.S.?
1: I share those uh, sentiments. I think that uh, the the U.S. democracy is uh, in serious danger and um, there are a number of factors here that uh, are worrisome. One is uh, that the U.S. has this enormous amount of uh, uh, arms um, out among the, uh, the population which makes it very uh, easy to organize uh, voluntary armies with assault uh, uh, rifles. Another is that uh, the US has now a greater inequality than ever. So this is uh, like 1929 in terms of uh, inequality, and it's just getting worse and worse. The third is uh, the possibilities with uh, new electronics and Elon Musk uh, taking over uh, Twitter the sort of a symbol of uh, what, what can, uh, can happen. And uh, uh, then we have that uh, uh, the, the very rich don't pay taxes. Billionaires uh, pay a maximum of 14% uh, of their income in taxes, while uh, the average American, uh, regardless of uh, uh, income, pay, pays about 20, 25%. And many billionaires don't pay uh, taxes uh, at all. So the U.S. needs to learn how to take care of, uh, uh, to control uh, the the rich. And after that, we have uh, no rule of law. Uh, Rule of law is something that you buy in the U.S. because you buy the best uh, uh, lawyers and then nobody can do anything uh, to you and here of course uh, former president donald trump is the is the best example uh, who shows uh, how much he has managed uh, to do uh, for uh, in his whole career without um, ever ending, ended up as a, as a, a sentence uh, a criminal while he many times had pay, uh, paid tens of millions of dollars in fines but you get if you're really rich you get a, 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 a way with uh, Uh, with uh, a fine. So, uh, and of course, uh, the weakness of uh, uh, the the media uh, in the US also. So I think that uh, the US is in serious uh, 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 danger.
0: Whereas uh, many of Donald Trump's associates have ended up in prison for ostensibly lesser crimes than he's committed. It's uh, fairly blatant, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and funnily enough, it seems to be that pedophilia is the the main crime that they have committed.
0: Well, Anders, this has been incredibly insightful, um, and it's a huge pleasure to speak to you again. Um, Really, I just, you know, I hope that Ukraine is victorious. I won't ask you to predict when the war might end. I think it's still fairly unpredictable, isn't it? But I think what is assured now is that Ukraine can and will win uh
1: eventually yeah but uh, it's always the risk that they uh, don't take the whole territory uh, I had hoped that Ukraine would uh take back uh, Kherson, uh in the course of October that didn't uh, happen now we don't know if it will happen before uh the end of the year which is the latest uh, forecast uh, end of November or end of December is what the generals say and then uh, the commander in chief uh, Vitaly Zaluzhny uh, says, uh, says that he hopes that uh, Ukraine will achieve victory in the spring and conclude the war in the summer, but we don't know. We could end up with a stalemate uh, 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 that uh, uh, with a trench warfare. This was the the cost is incredibly Japan. high yeah, in lives. Yeah.
0: Well, Anders, It's a huge privilege to speak to you again, Uh, and um, really I think our audience will benefit from your incredible experience and insights, and uh, I'm very grateful to you for making the time available.
1: Thank you, my pleasure.